0: Scott has uh, been a part of our community for a couple years now, and this last Saturday I mentioned that we spent some time as a leadership group just kind of discerning what does the future look like at New Community, and how is God working and moving among us uh, over the next few years, and Scott led our time in that, and God has just really gifted him in this ability to, to kind of visioneer and see the future and to help other people kind of live into that. And so we are grateful for he and his wife's presence in our community and the investment they make. He's going to come and share this morning, and the the focus of the time is really around this idea of stewardship, of how is it that we handle our resources and, uh, and our talents and our abilities. One of the things that we noticed as we were going through the book of Acts is that when we got to about this point in time, we would have communicated a couple messages directly focused to this idea of People had all things in common. They knew how to use their resources. No one considered what he had as his own, and everyone lived in community financially. And so as we started talking about that, we said, man, it is important that we address this subject of stewardship, and we thought, who better than Scott? So welcome, Scott, with me.
1: Good morning. Oh, that's good and loud. That'll work great. That'll work great. Linda and I have been part of the community here for a couple of years, and it's great to have a chance to come and share with you a little bit here this morning. I had the opportunity this summer to travel to India for a meeting of global generosity leaders, people from all over Asia, South Asia, that got together to talk about what it means to be generous. They had me come over because I was sort of the expert that they wanted to fly in, and what oftentimes happens in those situations is you end up being the student. I sat under some of the most amazing teaching I have ever heard on generosity. One guy blew my mind. He put this text up, and it's a text that we all know. It's a text we've all seen from Matthew 5, 1 through 11, and it will magically appear in a moment. There it is. Um, It's a text that we all knew, but the way that he unpacked it really rocked my world. And I want to share that with you a little bit here this morning. And I want to do it, uh, first I want to do it by way of demonstration. So I need, I need six volunteers to come up and help me. Six volunteers. Oh, and by the way, how many of you were here last week? Yeah. You know how Russ got the six volunteers and he stood on the chair and fell back into their arms? I'm not doing that. Okay. I'm not going there. I trust you guys, but I mean, come on. Six volunteers. Six, real quick. Come on up here. Just come on up. Six, six. Come on. Six, six. Quick, quick, quick. Got them? One, two, three, four, five, six. Good. Okay. Come, stand up over here in a line. I need you in kind of a little bit of a line here. Come over here. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Give him a hand. Give him a hand. I need the verse up there. So put my verse back up there. Perfect. Okay. So first one, come up over here. I want you to stand right here. Over, over, right there. Perfect. I want you to put your hands over your, over your eyes like that. Perfect. Next one. Come up. Stand right next to her. All right. Um, I need you to just sit. That's pretty easy, wasn't it? Perfect. Stand, stand right next to him. Um, and I need you to just cross your arms like this. Kind of put your head down. There you go. And you can stand right there if you want to. Come a little farther forward. Hands over your ears. Next one, I want you to come right here. Now you're going to have to, I'm going to switch you two around. Come up here next. I want you to lay down. Just lay down. Okay? I don't care. Lay, right on your back. Just lay flat on your back. And you're going to come and is, can you kneel okay? Yeah. See, I can't kneel. I've got bad knees, but you can kneel. Just, kneel. just kneel for me. Okay? And put your hands out. All right, so here's the point. This verse tells us that um, after Jesus had finished instructing the 12 disciples, he went from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent to his disciples to ask him, are you the one who has come, or should we expect someone else? And this is what Jesus says to them. He says, go back and tell John, here is the things that you see. right? So here's what Jesus proclaimed with the marks of the Messiah. First of all, he talked about the blind. And let me ask you, if you're blind, what do you want more than anything else in the world? To see. And Jesus says, tell John that the blind see. And they're happy. Do a little happy dance. (laughs) Their needs are met. And he says, also go back and tell John that the lame are able to walk. Isn't that what they wanted? Do your happy dance. There you go. Wonderful. And if you're a leper, what's the one thing you want more than anything else in the world? You want to be healed, don't you? He says, go back and tell John that those that have leprosy have been healed. Do your little happy dance. I love it. it. If you're deaf, what's the one thing you want? You want to hear. Go back and tell John that I have come and the deaf can hear. Happy dance time. Very cool. (laughs) Now, if you're dead, you would probably not like that you want, okay? But he says, this is so extraordinary. Go back and tell John that even those that have died are raised. You do a real big happy dance. There you go. And finally, if you're poor, what do you want? Uh-oh. We have a problem here. Because he says, go back and tell John that the poor have had the good news preached to them. Really? I mean, is she going to do a happy dance? Isn't, Isn't the needs of the poor met by giving them money? And this was the question that he posed to us. Why is the proclamation of the gospel the answer to the needs of the poor? I mean, when you read the text, right... She kind of gets ripped off, doesn't she? That's our subject for today. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Give everybody a hand here. Great job, everyone. So why is the proclamation of the gospel the answer to the needs of the poor? I'd never thought about that before and all the time that I'd read that text. To answer this question... I'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey, and it's going to require that we do a little theology this morning. You okay with that? You all had your coffee? Everybody awake? Stretch out if you need to. Take a big, deep breath. Sit up real straight and tall. We're going to run through this, but I want to give you a picture of what Scripture talks to us about when we talk about this idea of being a joyful steward. So, to do it, we need to start back in Genesis. Genesis. And I want to put these, i got a couple of charts up here because I learn better when I can see things visually. So the first chart I want us to look at is how did God create us? We go back to Genesis and we have this wonderful story. Think about this for a minute. God reaches down into the middle of absolute nothingness. The Hebrew transliteration is the tohu wabohu, formlessness and void. And God creates the world in the midst of that. In the process of creating it, rejected all the evil that was out there, and he created something beautiful and perfect and good. We see that all the way throughout the creation narrative. When he created humanity, when he created Adam and Eve, he created them in God's image, right? We know that. We're all created in the image of God. We all know that? Okay with that? Everybody say amen. Amen. We are created in the image of God. We are created in the image of a triune God, a God who in his very nature is relationship. So it shouldn't surprise us that God created us for relationships. When we read the Genesis account, we find out that God created us for perfect relationships with God. Adam and Eve just kind of hung out with God in the cool of the evening. Isn't that neat? We get to do that someday. God also created them to have peace with themselves, a relationship. They knew why they were there, why they were created, what they were supposed to do, and where they were going. They didn't have to go out and find themselves anyplace in Eden. He also created them in perfect relationship with one another and in perfect relationship with the created world around them. When we look at Adam and Eve, we get a vision of God's created intent for us that we would have these four areas of our relationship all living in perfect harmony with one another. I think I shared last time I talked that one way of saying it is that God's created intent was just to hang out in a garden with a bunch of naked vegetarians. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? That's what he wanted to do for eternity. That's what it means to be a real godly steward. It's just it's just all gods. We just get to hang out and love it. Unfortunately, that's not where it ends. We have Genesis chapter 3, and in Genesis chapter 3, we understand the fall of humanity. Now, this next chart is a little bit freaky when you first see it, but let me walk you through it. Because this really is the key, so much of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm gonna move through it from left to right pretty quickly. But on the left, you have this whole picture of the way we were created with beauty and all of these relationships. And suddenly we find that sin brings a brokenness in every single area. And this is important for us. Every single area was broken by the fall. Our relationship with God was broken, wasn't it? Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. Their relationship with themselves, their whole purpose for why they were there and what they were supposed to do, all of a sudden Adam and Eve find themselves outside the garden trying to figure out what life now is all about. Their relationship with one another was certainly broken, wasn't it? Adam blames Eve, Eve blames Adam. What's the first story that happens after Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden? Genesis chapter 4, what's the first story? Extra credit if you know it. Cain kills Abel. Eight verses into chapter 4, after Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden, Cain kills Abel. And we're off and running with the nightly news. Enmity between each other. And finally, brokenness with the creation. Adam finds out he's going to have to work with a sweat of his brow now to get something out of the ground that they can possibly eat. So every time I'm in my garden and I pick a weed, I go, Eve, darn that Eve. (laughs) But everything changed. Now, if we have that vision of brokenness, if you have that vision of the fact that sin brought brokenness in every part of our created reality, then think about the amazing thing that happened in the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, that cross brings healing and wholeness into every area of our life. Our relationship with God was healed, and now we can draw with confidence before the throne of grace. Our relationship with ourself was healed. Now listen to this. Don't miss this. Because in Jesus Christ, we know who we are, why we're here, and where we're going. Do you believe that? This morning I'd ask you, do you know who you are, why you're here, why God created you, your purpose on this earth, and where you're going? If you do, that is a precious gift. If you don't, then find somebody before you leave here today. Don't miss that. That's a gift to you as being a follower of Jesus Christ. He also healed our relationship with one another. You know, this great commandment where Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you shall love your... As you love, okay. do you see all three spheres? We love God and we love our neighbor because we love ourselves. We can love all three of them. God brought healing and wholeness to all three. And finally, to creation. That whole commandment that God gave us to be caretakers of this creation never goes away. We're called to take care of the creation, our skills, our time, our talents, our money, our possessions. So here's the point. The point is that in the cross of Christ, everything we lost in the fall was restored and redeemed back to us. And now God comes to every single one of us in this room and he says to us, take care of this. This is a gift. You lost it. It cost me the blood of my son to buy it back for you. And all I want from you in this entire life is to just be a steward. Just be a steward. Take care of it. I gave it to you. I'll continue to bless you. Just be a steward. And so we're called to be, what I would say, a one kingdom steward. Where everything we have and everything we are is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen to that? Now, let me ask you a question, and this is a trick question. How many of you here are experiencing and living today that one kingdom life where everything in every part of your entire life is totally submitted back to Jesus Christ? How many? Oh, yeah, that's good. It's, it's true, isn't it? I can't raise my hand either. Why is that? With this beautiful picture up here, why don't we live with everything in our lives totally given back to Him and just be joyful stewards? Well, I think the answer to that is found back in Genesis chapter 3. So let me go back to that for a moment. Adam and Eve are living in the garden, enjoying life, got everything that they need, everything they could possibly want, hanging out with God. And the evil one comes along and begins whispering and talking to Eve. The importance of this story, by the way, is that the same thing happens to you and I At least I'll say it. The same thing happens to me every day. So here's what he says. The first thing he says is, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree of any garden? You can't eat anything in the garden? Which is, of course, a lie. And he says, oh, no, no. We can eat of everything in the garden. It's all there for us. Mm, Except that one tree in the middle. And you can almost hear the enemy under his breath say... Wonder what God's holding back. And for the first time, I believe it gets Eve to begin to doubt the goodness of God. You see, if God was really good, you could eat of every tree. Why? What's with the one tree in the middle? How many times in our lives do we say, you know, if God was really good, wouldn't he give this to me? Wouldn't he answer my prayer and, and, and give the one thing that I most want? And so the enemy gets us begin to doubt whether God is really good. When he has her to that point, he comes along with a second one, and he says, you know, Eve, you won't die if you eat from that tree, which is basically calling God a liar. But what's going to happen to you is your eyes are going to be opened. You're going to see something you have never seen before, and it's going to be glorious. And for the first time, the enemy gets Eve to begin to ask the question, can I really still continue to trust completely in God? Or maybe, maybe, just maybe, I can take a little bit of that to myself. Maybe I can begin to control part of my life so that I don't have to trust God for everything. But I can trust myself. Because my eyes will be opened. And that trust exchange happens. And finally, when he has her at that point, the enemy brings in this ringer. And he says, you know what's going to happen, Eve? You will be like God. You will be like God. You'll be able to discern right from wrong. You'll be able to take your life back into your own hands. You'll be able to control the situations around you. You don't have to trust God for everything anymore. You can become the Lord and be like God. And in that process, Adam and Eve, and from them through their descendants, right down to you and me sitting here this morning, all become builders of our own little kingdoms. What do we put in those kingdoms? Well, I'll be the first to confess, in my little kingdom, something that I haven't given over to Jesus Christ fully, I put my time. My time is precious. I don't give it away easily. I'm not the kind of person that just hopes somebody will call me at 7.30 at night and needs something so I can go help them. I like to control my time. I like to be the Lord of my time, and it sits in my little kingdom. For some people, it's their reputation. For some of us, it's our future. We want to hold on to it and control it. For some of it, it's, some of us, it's our possessions. And for some, it's money. For some, it's popularity. But I want to ask you this this morning, because this is really the crux of what I came to share with you. Can you, right now, in all honesty, I'm not going to make you share it out loud, can you name in your mind those things in your life that you would have to admit are part of your own little kingdom? Things you haven't given over to Christ. Things you still want to control and say, this is mine. We all have them, don't we? We all have them? I need you to keep that in your mind because I have kind of good news for you. There's a reward for being the Lord of your own little kingdom. You see, if you re- have your own little kingdom, the enemy will come along and reward you with a big heavy chain. Everything that we claim to own ourselves slowly one by one puts us in bondage. This is heavy. And when we add our reputation and money and possessions and our future and our time and our relationships and our pride and everything else that we want to hold on to, the chains become heavier to where we become almost weighed down. And here's one truth I I just so hope and pray that you'll, you'll consider and think about this morning. In my life, whenever I feel stress... Anybody feel stress this morning? When I feel fear... You sitting here fearful about something for the future? Whenever I have anxiety, whenever I have dread, whenever I have any of those emotions that I know just eat away at me, every single time, I can trace them back to something that I'm holding on to in my own kingdom. Every time. I have never been burdened with a chain around concerned about something that I have submitted to Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So this is the reward for being kingdom builders. And Jesus comes along and he says, I have a better life for you because my desire for you is not that you live life bound up like this, but that you use the keys that I will give you to unlock the lock and take these bondages that Satan wants to put on our shoulders and let them fall. The reward is... For being one kingdom people is freedom. It's freedom. It's the gift that God has for all of us if we really are called to be one kingdom people and to live for Him. So, on a morning where I'm preaching about stewardship, my question I really came to ask you is do you want to be free? Do you want to be free? Do you want to go through this world with that sense that everything belongs to Him and I am just a steward? I am free to live this life the way that God created me to live it. That freedom is ours today if we'll accept it. So here's the invitation. Comes right out of Scripture. Jesus said, You will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. If the Son sets you free you will be free indeed. Isn't that good news? Scripture says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And finally, Paul just wants to make this point so strong that he says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Don't let yourselves be yoked again by the sense of slavery. The process we're talking about is something we label the journey of the faithful steward. So it's not something we just get to. But as you think about your own kingdom, what God is calling you to do today, this morning, is to begin to name the things that you are still holding on to, those things that put chains on you, and one by one, let God take them away, give them back, step off your throne, and claim this freedom for yourself. The best way I can share this with you is to, is to have you say something back with me because in the end, this journey is about proclaiming with your heart it's all His. Do you believe that? Your future, the concerns that you have this week, the fears that you are burdening with this morning, those things that are causing you stress, your reputation, your pride, everything that we hold on to, my friends, it's all His. Say it with me. It's all His. Say it again. Say it loud. It's all His. One more time. Say it. It's all His. We have to believe that. And He will set us free. There's one symbol that typifies what this freedom looks like. You all recognize this, don't you? Every Sunday, this bucket is passed around as an opportunity for us to give. And I want to share with you that this is far more than a plastic bucket into which we throw some cash on a Sunday morning. This is a symbol of how and where we are on our journey to be being set free to be the people that God called us to be. Every Sunday morning we have the opportunity as the people of God to come together and to lift up and proclaim a number of things by the way we respond to this single plastic bucket as it comes around. And so I'm going to take about 90 seconds. I think I can do this in 90 seconds. And I'm going to give you my top seven list of what we say by the way in which we respond to this bucket that comes around. And here we go. Number one. In the battle for my love between God and money, I choose God. Jesus said that you're in an eternal battle for your heart. You'll either love money and hate God, or you'll be devoted to God and will hate and detest money. It's a battle that we are in. And when this bucket comes by us every Sunday morning, we have the opportunity to reach into our pocket or to do what we have planned to do and take money out and say, I choose God. Money has no power over me. Cool, huh? Number two, I trust God to be my provider. Sometimes we look at giving in the church and we think, well, I'd love to give, but I just don't have any money. I mean, I'm scraping to get by as it is. The question that this bucket represents to you is who do you really trust to be your provider? Every dollar you'll ever have in your life comes from God. And everyone you ever will earn will come from God. And if we trust him to be our capital P provider, we can give with joy knowing that he'll always provide. Your understanding of that is demonstrated by how you respond with this bucket. Number three, it's all his. We just said it. And I'm not going to pretend to be the owner. I'm not going to let the enemy throw that chain back on top of me and say, no, no, I really own this. No, 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 my friends, it's all his, and I'm going to give it away with joy as he calls me to give it. If you believe it, you have a chance to demonstrate it by how we respond to this bucket. Number four, I have been set free to give with joy. This is just something that the world can't figure out. Everybody is out there trying to make more money, earn more money, save more money so that they can spend more and do more. And God's people come together and with great joy, they just give it away. That's what it means to be kingdom people, to be set free. Can you give with joy when this comes around on your journey? Number five, I want to worship God with all I have, no withholding. Last Sunday, Russ preached on Ananias and Sapphira about what it means to withhold from the community. If we come here to worship God with everything we have, if we raise our hands and praise God and we want Him to have our whole life, our money is part of who we are. And we worship God when we have the opportunity to give joyfully. This is our opportunity to engage in worship. I just love it if we all sat around here thinking, well, you know, the sermon's fine and the worship's fine and the music is fine, but I can hardly wait until they do the offering. Man, that's my moment. I get to know joy. I get to proclaim who God is. This is the greatest time of the service. When are they passing the bucket? But in reality, that's the kind of joy God wants for our hearts. Number six, this is the one I love the most. Money has no hold on me. The enemy is sitting there whispering in my ear, saying, You can't afford it. You got other things you should do with that money. Does God really need it? Is the church spending it wisely? All those things to deceive us. And when this bucket comes around, we have an opportunity to look the enemy in the eye and say, take that! You have no hold over me. This isn't mine. I do this in joy. and I do this in freedom. And I do this because I love God as my provider. And finally, when this bucket comes around, it gives us an opportunity to live out this wonderful ideal that we worship a God of absolute abundance. We can live in a life of scarcity, thinking I don't have enough, I don't know where I'll earn enough, I don't know, I don't make enough, how am I going to pay my bills? And we have a God up there of abundance and, and uh, has more provision than we can ever dare to ask or dream of. And he says, just trust me in this. Give with your whole heart in every area of your life and watch if I will not come and bless you. For all these reasons, this is a wonderful opportunity every Sunday to proclaim where we are in our journey of becoming more faithful stewards. Now you notice I didn't say anything about the fact that this bucket represents also the fact that it pays salaries, keeps the lights on, keeps the church going, that it funds missions, that it helps it helps people in need. And the cool thing about giving, the cool thing about God's economy is that all that happens as a result. But it's not why we give. We give to proclaim those things in our lives. So let me close with a quick story. I was asked a while ago to um, share what was my favorite giving story in all of Scripture. And the one that I came up with surprised a lot of people because I don't think we think about it as a giving story. But it's a, it's a familiar story that comes from uh, uh, Matthew 21. And Jesus is about ready to, to ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. You don't know about Palm Sunday, right? And he tells his disciples to do something really audacious. He says... I don't have anything to ride on, so I want want you to go into the local town, (laughs) and I kind of want you to steal a donkey. (laughs) I mean, in a sense, he says, you're going to go there, you're going to find this donkey tied up, don't say anything, just take the donkey and walk away. (laughs) Now if somebody happens to say to you, what are you doing with it, all you need to say to them is, what, remember what he says? The Lord needs it. So off the disciples go on this little larceny uh, expedition. And they come along and find a donkey tied up right where Jesus said it was. And so they borrow it. They untie the donkey. They start to leave it away. And scripture says the owner comes out and says, why are you untying my colt? I don't think that's what he said. (laughs) I think he picked up a stick. And said, why bleepity bleepity bleep are you untying my colt? This was his livelihood. This was a prized possession. And they look back at him and all they say to him is the Lord needs it," And he lets him go. They didn't come to him with a brochure to say, well, we're here representing the triumphal entry campaign. And you'll see from our campaign... <laughs> We're going to need three gifts at the donkey level. We were hoping you might consider giving one of those today. There was no offer to sit next to Jesus at the major donor dinner. And they didn't promise that as Jesus came into Jerusalem, that on the back of the donkey would be a little plaque that says, this donkey was made available by the generous donation of Abu. All they said was that the Lord needs it. And a few hours later, that man saw the King of Kings and Lord of Lords riding into Jerusalem on his donkey. That's what God does when we invest ourselves joyfully and generously in the life of the steward. And see when we do, when we give our time our talents, our treasures, the whole of our life joyously as stewards back into the work of the kingdom, then my friends, you and I become the answer to the needs of the poor. God bless you as you journey to becoming a full and faithful steward in the kingdom of God.